Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Good morning. It is good to see you all. It is good to be back in the pulpit this morning. I want to thank Jake for filling in for me last week. I want to thank everyone else who was a part of the service or who was there last week as well. It was very special. Uh, It meant a lot to me. Um, I like being the center of attention. That should surprise nobody. But I found out there's some attention that's better than others. Uh, And uh, a two or three hour long roast, you know, is not the most comfortable position to be in. So it's, it's a lot more comfortable up here making jokes about some of you. So uh, we will uh, get after it this morning. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to open back up with me to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, our long-lost friend. We return to Coalette, the author of Ecclesiastes. But I have good news for you this morning. I come bearing gifts. This morning we get a little more of a hopeful, a little more of a joyful, a little more of a a clear message from the text in Ecclesiastes. We get more of what we come to expect from wisdom literature. So when you and I read wisdom literature, whether it's Proverbs, um, here in Ecclesiastes, we, we're hoping for some sound bites, some, some short and sweet kind of phrases that help us think through life and give us advice for how we might live more wisely. And, and so far in Ecclesiastes, we've gotten a lot of wisdom on misery. So a lot of wisdom about ways in which perhaps our lives aren't working the way we'd want them to. And it's been, at times, a little depressing and a little sloshing through. But we turn a corner, uh, at least for a moment here in chapter 4, and uh, I think we will um, see a big payoff from just reading and listening to the text in front of us. You will remember, if you can, two weeks ago when we were finishing um, the passage before this one, uh, we went through chapter 4, verse 3. And it ended on a very pessimistic note, one of the most pessimistic, maybe, that Coalette has for us. I don't know if you remember this or not. He says, it's better to not be alive than to be alive. And then he says, it's even better for one who has never yet been alive. That person has it best, the one who's not alive right now or the one who hasn't been alive and then passed. And, and we were like, okay, this is not so happy and so encouraging, and so we came to the table with eager hands and eager hearts. But he turns a corner in verse 4, and we'll read through the rest of the chapter, and he'll give us some real wise, spirit-filled advice on how we might go about this life in a way that we might find meaning. Um, and so he's set the stage for the world that we live in, and it can be very confusing, it can be very frustrating, it can be very full of distractions. But here in Ecclesiastes 4, he gives us um, a couple paths forward in a, to, to walk forward in a wise manner and to perhaps find more meaning in our lives uh, than we would have without this um, advice, without these teachings from the book of Ecclesiastes. So let's read together. We'll pick it up in verse 4 and read through the end of the chapter, verse 16. And as we read... I'd like for you to keep watch for and track the word better, okay? Uh, I want us to notice, highlight, look for how many times and in what context Coalette uses this word better for us this morning. We begin in verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity, havel, meaningless, and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil 
and a striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity, vel, meaninglessness, under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Verse 13, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with the youth that was to stand in the king's place. There is no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come after later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, I I don't know how attached you are to that phrase, striving after the wind, but this will unfortunately be the last time we see it in Ecclesiastes. Uh, Much of what comes now, while still fitting inside his larger thesis that life is without the proper um, perspective and with the the proper relationship to God, meaningless, um, is still being upheld, but we'll see it through more of a kind of a wisdom um, lens. We'll see a lot more kind of nuggets about life that we can grasp onto and learn from. Um, Here in this passage, I think we get uh, some good ones. Uh, The word better here is used three times. I think if I'm counting correctly, I'm open to being wrong. But I see three times he says better. He compares one thing to another, and he says, this path is a better one for you to walk on. And so what I want to do this morning is real simply just follow those breadcrumbs. What are the three things he says is better for us to do, for us to be, in a world that's so often full of meaninglessness? The first one we find um, very early on in verse 6. And he sets it up in verse 4. He says, then I saw all the toil and all the skill and work that come And they come from a man's envy of his neighbor. It's vanity. It's a striving after wind. Here's the observation Ecclesiastes makes. He says, I'm looking out and I see that all the toil, all the work, all the struggle human beings go through, and then even the skill they have in that work, the way they perfect their business, their trade, their skills. He says it all comes from a place of envy. It comes from a looking out at our neighbors and saying, we want what you have, and we perhaps want more than you have. Now, we might remember, Koala has already told us that work is one of the few good gifts that we have from God. It's one of the few places where we can find at least some temporary meaning, accomplishing the tasks that God has given us during this lifetime. Here he points out that like all good gifts, that it can be distorted if used in the wrong way or for the wrong purpose. And so he makes this observation, and we might at first want to push back on this observation. There's a lot of other reasons that we work, that we clock in at our workplace, that we put in those hours, that we develop and perfect our skills and our trades. We want to provide for our families. We want to make an impact in the world. We want to create something beneficial. And he suggests here that it comes from instead a place of envy. He's, he's saying this, Humanity wants to keep up with the Joneses, and even better yet, if possible, destroy the Joneses, right? Make their trinkets look like nothing compared to ours. We could perhaps get at the question, um, ask this question to get at what he's, he's thinking about. 
when do you know and how do you know when you have enough? When you have all the money that you need and it's purchased and provided for all the things that you need to be happy and content in your life. When is that promotion you get and you get some extra $1,000 coming in every year that you go, oh, good, I don't even need that. Let's put that in savings or I'll give it away because I've got everything that I need to live right here and right now. If you're like me, when you get a little more money and an extra stream of income, your bills just increase, right? You find new things that you always needed and now can just provide for. Your lifestyle and, and what you think of a necessity for your lifestyle increase this along with your ability to live it out. Very few of us, I think, ever get to that point and say, hey, I've already decided. I don't need more. I've had enough. We could ask the question like this. We could, we could say, how do you come up with these type of conclusions? How do you determine what is enough for you, if there's ever a limit, if there's ever enough for you? And we might notice upon reflection that most of our lifestyle choices are based upon our culture. They're taught to us. There's something we are, we are given from those around us. There's something about minimalism that draws me to it. Now, I'm not a minimalist. I've never been able to step into that role. There's something about just having a few things and being content with that that, that seems really um, peaceful and attractive to me. Yet, if you're like me, you never really understand how much stuff you have until it's time to move. Then all of a sudden, you're going through closets you didn't know you had, and you're seeing like eight crockpots that you own, and six of them are still in a box with a sticker on them, and you're like, how did I get eight crockpots? Why would I need eight crockpots? I didn't even know that I own these things. I'm sure if we went around the room, you would have your own version of this. And you're like, I didn't even know that I had this, but it's been sitting here for the last 10, 12 years. How do we know what's enough or what's not enough? Well, it's maybe not as pure as we like to think it is. It's because we look at other people. Well, they have that phone. They have that type of car. They have this lifestyle with vacations and things of this nature. And we examine and look and evaluate ourselves based on those around us. Throughout the scriptures, this is seen as a, uh, a pretty damaging and dangerous temptation for you to envy what your neighbor has around you. And this motivation takes things out of, out of whack. And, and so he says, um, work, at least work that's meaningless, is a work that comes out of envy. It comes out of wanting better and more than others have. And it comes out of this lack of self-reflection about what do we really need and what, what really would be enough and why are we really working. And then he talks about a fool folding his hands and then a hand of quietness and then a handful of toil and a striving after wind. He gives us actually three pictures of different kinds of hands. And there's actually three separate kind of images three separate um, kind of traditions he's drawing upon here. He starts with a foolish way to approach work, to approach this gift that God has given us that when taken out of context can become something bad. He says, it's hands that are folded. This, he says, is a foolish way to approach this. This is one extreme out of the two extremes that human beings tend to take. Now, these, these folded hands... This is not something he invents. This is a tradition throughout wisdom literature, both in the Bible and outside of the Bible, that we find in Proverbs chapter 6. Um, the author tells us in verse 9 through 11, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? And just a little sleep and just a little slumber and a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The folding of the hands, the foolish who do this, this represents laziness. This represents a disengagement from our task um, in the world, from the, the toil that's been put in front of us to complete. 
And he says, as the scriptures often do, that this kind of a laziness, this type of a disengagement leads to ultimately self-destruction. The fool eats everything that's around him, and then without replacing it, he finds out that there's nothing left to eat except himself. He kind of disengages and destroys himself ultimately. There's a lot of reasons why people might disengage from the world. The, the hand that's folded here seems to represent the, the intent and the will and the desire and the energy that God gives us. And it represents a taking that out of the world and just laying it by our sides. Deciding to unplug and to tune out. Some people do this because they see the rat race that is so much of the world. And they go, I see that this is meaningless. And people are doing this because they're envious of their neighbors. And so I'm completely going to step back. And I'll just fold my hands here. Others do it perhaps because they've been hurt. And they think it's safer and just time for them to, to step out. Others perhaps do it because of sickness. People can become depressed and anxious, and this can cause them to, to fold their hands. He says that this is not the best path forward when it comes to engaging with our work. He instead gives us two alternatives. One is better, and the other is the other extreme. He says one is a handful of quietness. The image here is a, a palm that's open. Of quietness, what he's getting at here, the connotation is peaceful, rest, contentedness. And then, as opposed to that, two handfuls, the image here is of a hand that's clasped shut, a fist that's made, of toil, of striving after the wind. And it's better as the open palm than the closed fist or the folded hands. You see, if someone has their fist closed, it's hard to get anything out of there, and it's also hard for that person to receive anything. Someone with an open palm can easily give and can easily receive the image that he's, the, the point that he's getting at here is that on one extreme, you can check out of life. On the other extreme, you can just go, 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 busy, 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 put in 23 hours a day at the office. And then he says, in the middle, there is a peaceful life. A life where you do the things that you're supposed to do, that God has placed in front of you. And then you're able to be content. You don't go after more than you need. You don't try to do more than you can do or accomplish Jesus, we're told, comes to, to give us this kind of life, this abundant life. He says, I, I've given you peace. My peace I give to you. He models this throughout his lifetime. He says, I do what the Father's asked me to do. I don't do more. I don't do less. I don't do some things just because y'all aren't doing them and you're supposed to be doing them. No, I do what's in front of me. God has asked me to do, and, and then I have peace about it. I'm content. I rest. He's, he's saying in, in one sense here that it's better to do what's in front of us and then enjoy a nap than to do what's in front of us and then find more things to do and do and do and do and do and just join into this rat race. All of us, I think, have experienced different times in our lives where we've perhaps operated with a folded hand or with an open hand or with a clasped hand. And Coalette here invites us to find a better way forward. He then goes in a similar direction, talking about work, but moves into something else. The first lesson he teaches us here was it's better to live as content people. The second one is about community and partnership. So he says, again, I'm seeing this vanity under the sun. One person who's by themselves, they're, they're alone. They don't have a son or a brother, yet they don't stop working. They don't stop striving after more and more and more to the point where they can't even recognize the treasure that's in front of them. And they never sit down and ask themselves this question, why am I doing this? Who am I doing this for? What's the benefit? 
of all this work, of all this treasure grabbing and treasure hoarding, what is really the profit here? He says, this is vanity. It's an unhappy business. Instead, he says, two are better than one. They have a good reward for their toil. The scriptures are pretty clear throughout that you and I were made to live in community. You and I were made to live with one another, that two is indeed better than one. And you can see this in the context of work. People that have this closed fist in their posture towards work, and they go and they go and they go and they do and they do and they do, often will sacrifice relationships on the altar of work. As someone who's worked with teenagers, the scenario that I see all the time is of the parents who provide everything material for their children, but are never there for them. So they've got the new $6,000 car, but they are saddled with issues from a lack of parental love, parental support, parental um, affection, time being spent with them. I've yet to meet the kid who's like, look, my parents give me a lot of love and affection, but all I really want is the Maserati. I've got car issues, not daddy issues. Now, they'll complain about it, right? But I don't think you'll ever hear one say, I'll trade this for the other. So as we can get to a point where we're, we're doing and what we're going after belies the question, why? Why are we doing it? For whose benefit? Is it for our benefit? Are we caught in this treadmill, in this rat race that we can't get out of? And so he says, no, it's, it's always better to be together with other people, for even our work to be towards the end of a community, for it not to become an end in itself, but rather means towards those who we are living with. He's talked about eating as one of the gifts God gives us. He says an empty table is not the gift. When he says find pleasure in your eating and drinking, he's not saying find a table alone with the one hour you have off from work. No, he's imagining a family He's imagining a community. He's imagining good conversation and laughter and stories. And so he talks about how community is better for us. You and I as humans were never designed to live alone, but rather to live with one another. Togetherness better than loneliness. Connection better than competition. Now, the world that we live in is built and structured in such a way and has grown in such a way that this is very countercultural both to our kind of philosophy of the age and to just the way that our world has been set up. So we've operated under, in the Western world, kind of this rugged individualism. I suggest that it affects us at a level much deeper than we're often aware of. I've suggested from the stage here that it affects how we read the Bible, that we read the Bible as solo artists, instead of receiving promises and words to us as a community, as a group of people, as the body of Christ. It affects how we see our responsibilities. It affects how we receive our gifts. It affects how we spend our time. And one of the things that's happened is because of the technology that we have and because of the way the, the, the economy and the, the world is just set up is you have a hypermobility in our world as well as an easier ability to disconnect from real-life relationships. And it creates a destruction of what we might call like thick local community. So what I mean by this is we've got all kinds of like social media and, and other technologies to communicate. This allows us to work more, to work more efficiently. The interesting thing about productivity tools is they often make life easier, but they often don't in- decrease the amount of work we have. If anything, we work more because we have the tools to do those earlier tasks easier. And I'm going to catch 22 when we get these new, these new tricks, these new life hacks. And then we've surely experienced this. 
So many of us have to move, and we're able to move. The world's a different place. And so we leave behind community. We leave behind family. We leave behind church communities. We leave behind neighborhoods. And it's not always something we get to choose to do. Sometimes we have to do it or we have responsibility to do it. But it doesn't change the fact that in today's world, we are much more mobile than really any of humanity's ever been. With the ability, with the experience of breaking thick, real-life communities. If you've been at the church for any length of time, over a year or so, you've known we've had families here at the church. We've grown to love those families. We prayed with them, and we laughed with them, and we worked with them. And then they had to move. And as a pastor, as a church, this happens quite a bit. It's not necessarily anyone's fault. It's just, again, the world that we live in. But it's a hindrance to community. And we, we hear sometimes from people who have gone, um, some people who had sent in a video last week had talked about not really being able to find a church in their um, new place of life. And, and when I hear things like that, there's a part of me that's very satisfied. And a part of me that's very sad. There's a part of me that's like, of course you haven't found anything else, right? I mean, look at us. And the part of me that's like, well, I mean, did we do something wrong here? Because surely there's pros and cons to all kinds of different communities, but but if you've met one and somehow that ruins the whole thing for you, maybe you were misguided. Maybe we put false expectations on this. Because we were meant to, to live together with one another. He singled out already the the big critique of, you might say, like late Western capitalism. It tends to create either workaholics or those who disengage. It tends to fracture relationships and distort kind of everything else in life around its goals, around its means, around its way of producing and consuming. The, the text here gives us reasons, actually, why it's better to, to be with one another than to be by ourselves. The first, there's four of them. In verse 9, he says they're more productive. They have a better reward for their toil. This is true in business. This is true in ministry. When, when you and I work side by side, we are able to accomplish more. We're able to just be more productive. We're able to do it in a more satisfying and meaningful way. The second reason he gives us in verse 10 is that we can help each other in times of trouble. So he, he imagines here a journey, a person walking through a desert. And he says, if you're by yourself and you fall, there's no one there to help you. But if you have a buddy that's with you, when you fall, they can help you get up. Now, we might think about, you know, folks who are more elderly. Maybe I've seen these commercials. And someone falls in their house, and, and for various reasons, there's no one around to help them out. I mean, think about, really think about that kind of a scenario, how frightening that really would be, how dangerous that really would be. How truly unfortunate would it be for a person, for a human being, for one of us in this room to be somewhere and fall and not have a friend to be able to help us up? Life is full of obstacles. You and I are bound to bruise our shins and stub our toes and fall over and break some ribs, hurt a hip. And one of the gifts God has given us in the body of Christ is people who can help us when we meet trouble. People who can pick us up when we've fallen. People who can see us for more than the scar that we've received from that fall. People who can imagine a future of walking and running again and not just lying there in hurt and pain. People who are together can 
be with each other in times of trouble. The, the second thing he says, they can keep each other warm, verse 11. We read this and we tend to think of the marriage, right? And, and a married couple keeping themselves warm. Um, Ecclesiastes, Colette, most likely doesn't mean marriage, although marriage is certainly included in this. And Christians hold up marriage as a model of, of good community. But marriage is not really the only place where community is modeled. And we do wrong by many people when we imagine that that's the case. There are people who are single. There are people who are widowed. There are people who, for whatever reasons, have chosen a life of celibacy. And they are not second-class citizens in community. They don't have second-class options when it comes to community. We, again, are maybe a little unfamiliar with this or would be weirded out by it, but think in an ancient world of you traveling in a desert by yourself and then encountering a night that all of a sudden turns to freeze. And you're by yourself. And you don't have a buddy who in the ancient world might have laid back-to-back with you and kept you warm. Again, how truly unfortunate for somebody to find themselves in a cold place, becoming numb, losing feeling, and having no one around to say, you can have some of my energy. You can have some of my life. How unfortunate is that? How sad. What a bad situation that person has found themselves in. We can imagine our our lives as a journey. We can imagine times of spiritual coldness. Times where we go cold to the touch, lose our ability to feel. We become numb. And we might encounter someone who, with their prayer for us, or their encouragement for us, or, or their ideas for us, give us a spark of heat, give us a little bit of energy. So you can rely on me for a bit, and we'll move forward together. I'm told, so I'm a Texas boy, born and raised. I'm told there are places in the world where there's a thing called winter. I thought I was in it right now. It's in the 50s. It's pretty miserable. But where the the temperature actually does drop pretty severely, and in fact, our country's experienced a lot of this this year, these Arctic blasts. How unfortunate to be somewhere where you can't be warmed up. We have no one to help you warm up. This is one of the many benefits that we receive from community. The last one in verse 12, he says, um, people who are together can protect one another. He says, uh, a man might prevail against one who's alone, but two are going to be able to withstand him. Two will be able to help each other when there is an attack. And then he mentions this threefold cord, and he kind of steps up the numbers here. He's been one and two, one and two, and then one, two, three, kind of out of the blue here. Now, this is a very common metaphor in the ancient world. So um, this is well known in other ancient Near Eastern texts. It seems to be another metaphor for illustrating how much better community is than loneliness and isolation. But Christians throughout the years, have, they've read this, hear that number three. And they're sparked to think of other things than just community by itself. One of my favorite theologians, Richard of St. Victor, one day was exploring intellectually the idea of the Trinity. And he came up with a model, a way of understanding. It's not perfect. None of them are perfect, but a way of thinking about the Trinity. It's something called the social analogy or metaphor, the family way of looking at the Trinity. He says this. He's reflecting on this. What would it mean for our God to be a perfect God of perfect love? And how might that lead us to understand more fully the fact that God is triune? He says this. Okay, if you have perfect love, love is not perfect unless it is given to someone else. Love is not even really love, right, unless there's a relationship here. And so if there is a God who's 
perfected in all attributes and is primarily love, then it would make sense. It would almost necessarily require that there would be one other who's receiving and giving back the love that he has. And if we think about it, that person would also have to be perfect to be able to perfectly receive his love and perfectly reflect that love back to himself. So it's already there. We've got a plurality. We can understand why there might be more than a oneness to the inner life of God himself. And then he says, in fact, if we keep thinking about it, love is not perfected between two people when it's not shared, when there's not an overflow of that love. We've all experienced this. You get great news, and then you're not allowed to tell anybody for whatever reason, and there's a ceiling to the joy. The couple that's pregnant in the first few weeks, they, they aren't really telling anybody else. There's still a lot of joy, a lot of happiness, excitement, but there's a little bit more that could have been found there. And so you can't have perfect love without actually three. And he says the father then would be the lover, the son, the beloved, and the spirit, the co-loved. And he says this is one way perhaps we can get our minds around why God would be triune, why it would make sense that a loving, perfect God is triune. And we can think about this in our own lives. I mean, we actually use this language. We might not reflect on it so much. Very literally, we talk about a man and a woman loving each other. Some of you have kids. One day those kids are going to be interested in some of the things they've heard or seen or feeling. And you're going to say, okay, when a man loves a woman, they get together. And then think about, again, the language we use. They make love, and something new is created. The love results in something else. And that something else shares in the love that created it. One becomes two, those two become three. The love is perfected, expanded, increased. This is a way for you and I to understand creation, what it is for us to receive the love of God. God creates things other than himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, so that his perfect love can overflow towards us. This is why you and I have been invited into redemption and salvation. We've been invited to take part in and experience this overflow of love that has resulted in something other than God being created. This is the story that we find ourselves taking place in. It's because God himself is relational, communal, that you and I, in his image, are necessarily also made for community and relationship. And we find true life when we are connecting with not only the God who made us, but the people of God around us as well. It's better for us to live with contentment, with an open palm. It's better for us to be in community than in isolation. And in this last passage here in the the chapter, he talks about a better way to exist among other people. He says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. I was thinking about this verse when Jake was preaching last week. If you didn't get to hear it, you missed a gem of a sermon. He, He talked about how young the apostles were. Now, we often imagine them as older men, and in reality, you know, many of us would look at them and say they seem like kids to us, and yet God used them, had no qualms about using them. He says here, what God relishes in a wise person is not just age, although wisdom usually comes with age. Not always, though, right? It can be hard to teach an old dog a new trick. Wisdom doesn't, age doesn't guarantee wisdom, we could say. And it's not just status, poor versus rich, someone who comes from no status or from high status, that doesn't guarantee wisdom either. He says what really stands out here is, is their ability to take advice from the people they find themselves in relationship with. The ability to take counsel, the ability to receive, if necessary, correction. 
It's their attitude towards advice. He gives an example, a story. It's a rags to riches story about a, a young man coming up and becoming the king because of his ability to listen to others and, and lead with a teachable spirit, not being too proud to learn from those around him. I can say as I think through my own life, both as a leader and then just generally as a Christian, with all the best things that have ever happened to me, so things that I've, I've been able to think, things that I've been able to do, things that I've experienced, have come from other people. Have come not from me and myself and I, not from my self-sufficiency. But the love I've experienced has come from God's love in Christ and his love embodied in Christ through his people. The best work that I've ever been able to participate in is to come alongside other people with their ideas and advice and wisdom leading the way. He, he's talked about it's better to work with this community in our mind. It's better to live with a community on a journey. It's, it's better to lead with a community. And I would argue as far as to say that there's almost nothing I can think of that would be better to do alone than with other people. I mean, maybe go to the bathroom or something. I'm sure we could be really strained and we could find something. It's better to doubt with other people one of the ways the church has failed and been as little more unhealthy than it could have been is, is we've, not us specifically as a larger church, we've sometimes made it unsafe to have doubts. And the church becomes the last place where people are willing to speak their doubts and wrestle with those things instead of the, the place they should be most comfortable with, the place where they find fellow companions in this journey towards truth. The best place to doubt is, is with the body of Christ. The best place to learn is with one another. I was talking to a friend earlier this week, and he was saying, you know, learning Hebrew and Greek, that must really help you have insight into the scriptures. And, and I was thinking back to him, I was like, well, sure, but, right, you are a doctor, and that must really give you insight into the scriptures. You have all this stuff that I don't have when it comes to interpreting the scriptures. It's together that, that it, it flourishes. It's all together that it works well. We worship and we serve. We do all of these things. We pray. We read the scriptures. We sing. They all find maturity. They find flourishing when we do it in and with one another. As we come to the table this morning, I think we were given a, a chance to model these three better paths. At the table, we can come and unfold our hands or unclasp our hands and receive God's gift in Christ with an open hand. Perhaps this morning we should reflect on what kind of posture we're living in when it comes to work. At the table, we come not as individuals, but as a community. We come as the family that's been united with Christ. And the love of the Father, the work of the Spirit. At the table, we come not because we decided we should come, but because we've been invited because the voice of the Spirit has called to us and the voice of his people have joined in the chorus saying, come and receive God's love. The table, we take cues from that which is wiser and higher than our own ideas and our own minds. Wherever we find ourselves in life, I would think surely these three better paths that Colette gives us are ways for us to move forward into the future. And one of the many gifts given to the people of God is that at the table we can begin this practice. 
the table we can open our hands, the table we can remind ourselves who's around us, who can be there for us. At the table we can understand that there's much more than just us and our ideas and our wisdom, that we should people be people who learn and, and take heed from the wisdom of God and, and from the wisdom of God's people. In a moment, we will pray, and you'll be invited forward as we do every Sunday, that you and I in this, in this very busy and very distracting world under the sun, full of meaninglessness, full of treadmills, might find better paths where we can find more meaning, more depth, more truth, and more peace.